Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist. Seriously Geeky. Episode 68. Dive Bar Dharma. Making it fresh or sensationalizing it? Should ancient metaphors be updated to reflect our current culture? And if so, how far should teachers go in adapting the teachings of the Buddha to the culture and countercultures that they teach within? Join the Geeks of the Roundtable as we discuss a recent article published on Salon.com entitled Dive Bar Dharma. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks listeners, this is Ryan Olke. I'm back with another special episode of what we like to call Geeks of the Round Table. The table that's round is Geeks of the Geeks of the Round Table. Nice. Yes. Yes, and I have my compadre, Vince Horn. Yes, Geeks of the Roundtable, what we're calling now uh, GRT. Just kidding. <laughs> it's great. It's great. We like acronyms. Um, so yeah, we're here with a couple Buddhist geeks, and today we have Duff McDuffie joining us again. He was in the original Geeks of the Roundtable yep, discussion. Be back. And he's like host of like a million shows here at Falling Fruit, but most notably uh, Conscious Business and Precision Change, our new uh, show on productivity. Yes. I'm sorry, on personal development. And then we also have, to my right, Aliyah Braley. Shambhala practitioner. She cuts the throats of the cuts the aortas of the perverters of the teachings over there, and uh, and, and she's also into Christian practice and study. And she's been a long term Christian. So welcome, Aliyah. Thank you. Yeah, and finally, last but not least, is Theo Horesh, and he is our local political pundit. He's just started blogging on ReframeAmerica.com. And he's also host of the Conscious Business Show. And most importantly, he's our professional SN Gawenka impersonator. So that's right. Welcome, Theo. <laughs> <laughs> and you can actually hear more impressions because we did an episode with Theo and Duff yeah. on SN Gawenka. Yeah, it was like Entrepagurus and the Meditation Fact. It was like the best titled <laughs> yes, episode <it> ever. <laughs> and today we're going to, just like last time, we're going to use an article to jump off into a broader discussion about certain topics of interest to Buddhist practitioners. And the article that we chose was one that was recently published in Salon.com. It's by Whitney Joyner, and it's called Dive Bar Dharma. And the subtitle goes, To attract a new generation of Buddhists, two teachers are replacing the old hippie trappings with a tattooed aesthetic and references to Jay-Z. What up? <laughs> and uh, I believe the two teachers he's mentioning are Noah Levine and Ethan Nickturn, both of whom we've had on the show so, yeah, we just wanted to jump jump right in, start talking about it. I'll just mention you can get to the article by going to our website, BuddhistGeeks.com, checking out this episode, and there's going to be a link at the bottom. So if you want to check it out. Um, but, yeah, let's jump in and start talking about things that came up for for you yeah. guys around this article. Theo, I saw what I thought was a pad of paper with lots of notes written on it. So I wondered if you had some thoughts to kick us off. <laughs> Actually, you must have been looking at something else, but I did have plenty of thoughts oh, okay. to kick us off. The, the thing that kept striking me is that if we want Buddhism to reach out 
to a wider audience, if we want um, to spread the Dharma. I'm not sure if going to dive bars is the first place that would come to mind for me or going to the counterculture at all. Um, that might have worked quite well going to the counterculture in the 60s and 70s. But at this time, it seems like reaching out to mainstream America is what needs to be done and what's being done. And I use the example of the mega churches in Christianity that have been extremely successful. They've in some ways changed the face of our country by mm. seeing an alienated suburban population and asking what they need and looking and seeing they need community. They need some way to connect with one another and bringing them together in these massive mega churches. And they've certainly changed our political system. Now they've changed our approach to Christianity. I don't think for the better, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it raises some interesting questions. How do we really spread the Dharma? Right. It's interesting because as I was reading this, I wondered what group they felt they were a part of. It sounded to me that they felt like they were speaking for some mainstream aspect in America. I think in particular the mainstream urban aspect, but right. it's really hmm. interesting because to me and to a lot of my friends, for example, tattoos and Jay-Z are exotic. The same thing that they're accusing, say, more traditional Buddhism to be. So it's partly, I think, where your perspective is, what's an exotic play out of mm -hmm. the dharma yeah i got the sense they were trying to reach people where they were i'm not sure about the exotic piece um just that yeah a lot of people are are familiar with jay-z they're familiar with like paris hilton or iphones or, like any of these metaphors that nick turn uses in his dharma talks mm -hmm. uh crackberries right. <laughs> <laughs> which i guess are blackberries right yeah um, they're highly addictive so i had the impression he's trying to reach out to people that kind of resonated like more mainstream. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I would almost argue that it's, uh, wasn't quite counterculture, although the tattoo and the punk scene definitely is, yeah. but yeah. like in New York city, uh, it's pretty normal for people to listen to Jay-Z probably. Yeah. Or at least yeah. know about him. Yeah. Counterculture. I don't know much about, I mean, I have three tattoos and most people would say I'm average looking Joe. And I, so when I look at, you know, Noah, I'm, I'm not really like, Oh my gosh, he's so counterculture. You like, have three tattoos. I do. I just, I but you know, I can show them to you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think there's a, a difference, though. You, you also don't, I don't think, hang out at dive bars after work. Maybe you do, but maybe a regular bar. But like dive bars plus tattoos plus Jay Z, I, I think. Yeah, the dive bar. It all kind of works together right. to create this picture of counterculture. We all have aspects mm. of different parts of our culture, countercultural right. or mainstream. Or yeah, Dharma like talks that. happening in a dive bar place. You know, that does kind of bring up some questions as a specific sort of strategy of bringing in a new context. Although I, even pondering that, I know I've hung out with Vince at numerous places doing numerous things, t having these conversations just come up all the time. So at the same time, it still doesn't seem awkward to me. I was looking to be surprised or like blown away when I read the article and I just seemed pretty normal to me. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of the church at the bar in Denver. I had a couple of friends go down there <laughs> and I think it was more, I think it was more marketing technique. It was like, let's try to, I think it's the same with this article, dive bar Dharma. It's kind of more of like a sen right. sensationalize, like, we're really going out of our way to make this accessible to people kind of thing. Well, mm -hmm. There seems to be a number of elements that mm -hmm. are implicit within this notion. One is there's a sort of engaged Buddhism of mm -hmm. going into places of mm -hmm. so-called lower consciousness where 
people are harming themselves and trying to be with that. And that seems like an incredibly healthy, positive thing. I, I vociferously argue with anybody who suggested otherwise that that's a, that that's a good thing. Then there's this other element of marketing the Dharma, which I think is extremely controversial. Mm-hmm. Um, how much do we want to market this to put it in a package that um, appeals to either mainstream America or some particular countercultural group that's sensationalized? Um, do we want to sensationalize the Dharma right. to draw right. more people into mm-hmm. it? Um, there seems to be another aspect that's going on, which is these two teachers going back to their roots. Mm. And that's mm-hmm. that's a wonderful thing. I mean, it seems to have an aspect of integrity tied up in that, that, you know, I've, I've been converted to some new thing. I've gone to the mountaintop, and now I'm going to come back down and spread what I've learned. Mm-hmm. That seems really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The, the question is, and how do you do it at that stage? Right. And it seemed like, I mean, one thing is that they're setting up this new context or trying to, um, you know, like at the bar or whatever, in this new context where it's not just necessarily at a monastery with all these religious symbols and certain forms. Like it could be a little different than that. And the other thing that I thought was really cool is the metaphors using different metaphors and different ways of expressing timeless truths. Like I mentioned the iPhone and Crackberries and Mm Jay-Z. Those are are part of uh, Ethan Nickturn's Dharma talks uh, continually. So I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. I think that the, the useful uh, the skilled use of metaphors for a particular group that you're speaking to, I think is really important. Um, I think a lot of what happens when you have a old tradition is you use the old metaphors that just don't make any sense in the context anymore. Right. And so you have these uh, works of Dharma that were written in the third century or before that refer to farming practices or, or I mean, like stuff kings that kings and have, <laughs> have no relevance goats. to, to present day people. And so the teachings get really stale. Yeah. And so I think that's a key element of any religious or spiritual tradition is to make the stuff fresh again yep. by, you know, having the direct experience first and then translating it through metaphors that people understand now. Yeah. One of those that I found to be particularly interesting was a very simple one. They, substitute the word suffering and they put in stress instead, yeah. which is a word that's thrown around so much in our mm. culture. And I think it can be really powerful to examine in the light of Buddhist teachings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's yeah. a great point. You definitely need a lot of wisdom around people who are translating things and that's literally translating, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and that's a part of a big part of my study. And um, it takes a lot of intelligence and experience to then wrestle with what's the best term for our culture. And so things like mm-hmm. faith in Tibetan, you know, there's a lot of debate on how to translate that. Should we translate it as faith for Buddhist or more like conviction or confidence? And so you see a lot of books being written about that in different perspectives. Mm-hmm. So I, I do, I'm more critical of people randomly just assigning new terms to Buddhist terminology because I think they miss the mm-hmm. point. So I would argue hands down against the use of stress until mm-hmm. I heard a really good argument for it because it's, really missing the boat for me what does it miss stress um, so like in buddhist i mean we can this is geeks of the round table but there's three levels of suffering geeky. you know so three levels of suffering and the deepest is this all pervasive suffering mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. way below the normal sufferings the first level of suffering is the, what we consider stress mostly yeah, yeah. And we're totally oblivious to the all pervasive stress uh, all pervasive stress if you'd like yeah suffering um so dude i'm so stressed out that reality is not how i want it to be yeah <laughs> So I'm not sure that it gets at it with, with the 
colloquial use in Western yeah. terminology. Yeah, because that third meaning has more of a meaning of like there's some stress of duality that you just it's like really fundamental and you're just really not aware of it until you get yeah. aware of it. Yeah, uh, and but so you I can't really conceptualize um, it before then. It's profound. Yeah, I actually ag- agree with both of you, mm-hmm. but for the sake of argument, you mm-hmm. both sure. you both use stress when describing it um, instead of the word suffering. So it seems like potentially the word itself isn't as much of a problem as the notion that by using this word, we're going to lose the subtlety of what it means. Mm-hmm. But the word itself, right, right. I wonder if it's so hard to actually just call it stress. Like there's a low level stress that we experience um, that we're usually not aware of and we're not mm-hmm. aware of until we really mm-hmm. take a look at. So it's, I think it's possible to use those terms. I actually am honestly very wary of the whole thing for similar reasons mm-hmm. that you all said. Yeah. So I can really relate how much gets lost when you right. repackage something. Can you really repackage it and retain all the depth of this tradition that's been evolving and been added to for totally. you know, generations totally. and generations and generations. Well, I mean, the other point that I would add in, in favor of repackaging though, is that what you're often doing when you're repackaging is just making something palatable to draw somebody in enough that they will study the depth, which includes studying the historical context of the Dharma or the teachings. You know, so the repackaging is just for like, you know, what, what the heck is this generally and how does this apply to me? And then as soon as someone wants to go deeper, they'll, they'll, you know, they'll deal with the regular terminology and, and translate over and go deeper. So I th- still think it applies if you just sort that out. And what changes really is the metaphors. That's what I noticed the most. Because yeah. even when you go to find Western terminology that's best, it's still a very technical specific language. And so it takes a lot of time and say, well, which is the which term or group of terms are the best to choose from synonymously. And, but the metaphors, which is really how a lot of teachers teach and get at the meaning is you know, that's what changes. So like the metaphors that I'm hearing teachers use, even Tibetan teachers now are starting to adopt Western metaphors um, along with getting the right Western terminology for us. So there's two different things that can change. It seems like in the midst of all this, that there's something incredibly shallow that's going on here. And I'm mm. not sure if it's not going on in other presentations of buddhism as well Mm. which is there's this effort to contact a wider audience to Mm -hmm. speak to people where they're at and the first thing that we go for is the most shallow aspects of their being some (laughs) kind of surface Mm -hmm. appearance is some kind of trendy garbage um, that they're tied up in we don't contact them in their business lives in their political participation in their family lives, the things that are really core to their day-to-day existence, no matter what kind of surface appearances they exhibit. And I actually think that Buddhism, as it's developed in its incredibly boring forms that they point to, (laughs) has been doing that much more so, particularly with, with family life and work life. It hasn't yet done a good job, I think, of dealing with ordinary political participation, basic reasoning, um, Mm. basic debate in society that determines where we go as a society. Mm. Um, But that to me seems like the job that Buddhism and any religion needs to do in reaching out. Yeah, yeah. This kind of reminds me of two things. One is um, the mindfulness movement, the kind of secular mindfulness movement where Mm -hmm. they're trying to, you know, Diane, Diana Winston, we spoke to is uh, really involved with that. Alan Wallace similarly is trying to kind of get some of these technologies into mainstream culture, into education and into um, mental institutions and that sort of thing. And he's kind of going for that more mainstream approach, like Mm -hmm. let's get these technologies out there and show how useful they are and then get them in every context possible. 
um, and just kind of strip a lot of the religious elements and, and just get some of these useful technologies. And that brings up all sorts of other stuff. But, and then the second point is, uh, Ethan Nickturn his one of his big emphasis is on activism. Um, so he actually is yeah. really no, uh, interested great. in political involvement and like the Buddhist peace fellowships, a good example of uh, institution. That's all about that. And uh, it seems like a lot of the gen Xers teachers that I know of got involved through activism. That was like their, their way in to yeah. Buddhism. So yeah, there's, there seems to be some element of, um, that's, I sensed in this article that some other people here might not have sensed about bringing it back to the counterculture seems to be tied up with bringing it back to an activist counterculture or a counterculture that's resisting the dominant models of society. Mm. And that's mm. just radically different than tying it in with Paris Hilton talk and, um, right. <laughs> and up-to-date mm. metaphors and mm-hmm. popular culture. I mean, mm-hmm. there's almost like two very divergent aspects mm. that are happening simultaneously and mm. almost every statement I see coming from them. Now, the one that's bringing it into activism is that this is a challenge to all of our notions of what it means to be a human being and how we organize ourselves with other humans on this earth, mm. um, that we have a better vision of society that's possible mm. And uh, we're gonna we're gonna foist it upon you, and I actually think that's wonderful. <laughs> Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun, from October sixteenth through the nineteenth in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.